Hi, and welcome to Women CEO in Reflection, a podcast dedicated to personal growth and mental health discussions with women CEOs across the globe. It's here where inspired women get candid about what drives them to succeed and the personal challenges they've encountered on their path to success. So if you're a woman on a mission, this is the podcast you don't want to miss. So sit back, relax, and let's get candid. Hi, and welcome to Women CEO in Reflection. I'm your host, Marisa Jones, and I'm joined by my co-host, Neil Haley. Today's guest is Mia Johnson-Turner. She's the chartering president at National Coalition of 100 Black Women, Inc. She's in in the Dallas Metropolitan Chapter. She's an entrepreneur, speaker, published author, academic scholar, consultant, activist, therapist, and minister with the personal mission of empowering others to live life on purpose by making the most of every opportunity for social and economic development. Mia works as the National Community Outreach Manager for the Myeloma Link Program at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, and is also the president of the Johnson Collective, where she offers leadership development services and therapy to business executives, corporations, church leaders, and individuals. Her personal life mission and motto has been and continues to be, if there's a problem, there's a solution, and believes it is our responsibility to be the conduit for which solutions are birthed. Welcome to the show, Mia. Thank you for having me, Marissa. I really appreciate it. Thanks for being here. Um, So, wow, you have your hands in so many things, like so many women I interview, always juggling some really fantastic um, you know, issues and, and challenges. Uh, why don't you tell us about kind of your journey in life and how you wound up doing what you're doing today? Oh gosh. Um, so that journey was a journey, right? <laughs> Lots of, of hills, valleys, turns. Um, initially, uh, when I started out uh, and, and went to college, I was thinking I was going to, number one, go into some type of medical field. And then we were talking law. And so we were just kind of all over the place. I went into mental health um, about, let's see, about my fourth time changing my major, right? Went into mental health after the Andrea Yates case um, out of Texas and the Clara Harris case. And I was just completely fascinated um, by those cases and really just um, involved myself, you know, into that. At the same time, um, I had also just become a licensed minister just, you know, a few years prior to that and quickly had uh, gained favor in terms of leadership, meaning that when things would happen behind the scenes with pastors and leaders and things of that nature, I would be in the room, not so much as in the room when it happened, but in the room when it was time to discuss what are we going to do about it? How are we going to do some damage control? How are we going to bring this resolve? You know, how are we going to make sure that, you know, not too many additional people are hurt in the process? So I've always been in a situation where um, I had to take some level of lead because it was kind of dropped in my lap. Right. Um, And so. I I did that for many years, not really understanding much about it, but just kind of going with the flow. My mom would always tell me I had a natural gift for it and I continued to to build on it. Um, And then it just continued. I started working for the state of Texas with a state government agency. 
um, did that for about 15 years and dealt with families. And I mean, I saw families at their lowest of the low, at their worst, and also meant that I had to end up in court. I was testifying before judges and they were using my documentation and my testimony to make permanent decisions in people's lives. Um, and from there, moved into being a division manager with that same state agency and worked in contracts, which meant looking over lots of money that uh, came through this particular um, agency. And at the same time, once again, I'm still doing ministry in the background. Um, and I just wanted to get more involved with the community because I was involved, but I felt like it was more than I needed to do. And so I started doing some searching online and um, we had just signed a contract or, or a document, a policy with the agency, the state government agency that said we, can't, we couldn't get into politics because I was like, okay, politics is where I'm headed. And then we signed something that says you can't. And so then I had to pull back on, on one of the organizations that I was really, really, really wanting to do because it would have been a conflict for, for my job. And that's when I stumbled across the National Coalition of 100 Black Women. Um, I, you know, emailed the national office and was just like, hey, you know, can you point me in the direction of the person that I can talk to? I just want to be a member. And at the time, there was not a chapter in the Dallas Metroplex. And so I got the response, hey, tag, you're it. We need one out there. And so that's how the Dallas Metropolitan chapter um, came about is I reached out one to be a part and they told me we need you to go start one. And so uh, here we are, you know, many years later, I am still uh, with that organization. Um, I uh, do some things on a national level. I'm their national health committee chair. I'm also elected to one of their committees as well on the national level. And now we're looking at uh, branching off into Fort Worth and we'll be having our first interest meeting in the Fort Worth area in just a couple of weeks. Um, and so that's kind of how I got started. Lots of tops and turns and um, it was a rough, it was rough, but I wouldn't change it for anything. That's great. You know, some women want to, to meet meet one of those milestones, right? And and they struggle to even know where to start, but you just kept going. It's almost like it came to you naturally. Where do you yeah. think that drive comes from for you? Where do you think oh, you that get was, that? That was definitely my mom and my grandma, for sure. Um, you know, I was raised, my sister and I, we were raised in an all-girl household, and, and we were, I mean, we were poor, Marissa, man, we were poor and we were, you know, we laugh about it now because we were, we were the kind of poor where my mom and my grandma didn't let us know we were poor, you know? And so we, we kept going and kept going and we just, we just thought this was, you know, what you were supposed to do in the community. And, you know, there were certain things that I grew up, certain mottos, certain life principles. It wasn't, um, there was no conversation about whether or not I'll continue with my education that it, it was never a what should I do or should I go to college or maybe I won't from the from as early as I can remember it was always told to me it's not even up for debate you're going to college I don't care how you get there but you're going and and so I'm a first generation college graduate as a result and so it was always instilled that we don't quit I don't care how tough it gets or what our environment, because our environment said, 
you're not supposed to be going to college and you're you're not supposed to be continuing, you know, down this path and matriculating the way, you, uh, you know, you have. And my mom would put me in things and people around me did not know we were just that poor. Which they, they had no clue. And I mean, she had me in ballet and she had me, I was in, in uh, magnet schools and, and because of my grades, I was in certain programs that afforded me the opportunity to go have dinner at the governor's mansion. Um, and then, you know, a year later, I got to go to the White House and it was it was things like that, that people around me had no clue that I was getting on a plane for the first time and my family had never been on a plane to go to the White House, you know? And so it just was something that it, it wasn't up for discussion. You keep going. I don't care what people say, what people do. I don't care how hard it gets. You you keep going. And that's what I saw them model before me. That is so amazing. That that truly shows that that right there is the, is the truth as to how important it is to have strong mentors and especially women mentors who can who can support you and tell you that you can be anything you want to be. And you had that in your mom and your grandma. And I just think that's that's so wonderful um, because it's so important. Um, you know, my my parents are both Sicilian immigrants and they only have an eighth grade education. They never told me to go to school. I was supposed to just get married and have babies like that was not something that was in my culture. Um, although everyone, you know, the women did wind up going to college. We did wind up going, but it was on our own accord. Um, but it's really important just to show that that, you know, having those female mentors in your life, um, uh, what it can do to you and how it can bring success to you. Um, and also probably brought you a lot of confidence, made yourself, made you and your sister, like be strong and confident women. You know what it did? There were times that I was not though. Can you believe that? There were times <laughs> that I, I wasn't that confident only because, you know, I would, like, I would know what my mom and my grandma was saying. Right. And I was going to, you know, I was going to follow through. Right. But then I also looked at what society or who society told me I was supposed to be, you know, I'm not supposed to go to college. I'm supposed to have, you know, babies. I'm not supposed to be married, you know, um, I'm not supposed to, you know, really do much of, of anything besides, you know, that become another statistic. Right. And so my environment says that that's what it should look like. And really where I lacked confidence, my environment is what pushed me to keep going until I got the confidence. Because there were certain things um, that I saw in my uh, community and, and some in my family that I knew I didn't want to repeat, right? People ask me all the time, Mia, why, why don't you drink, right? I've, to this day, I've never been drunk a day of my life. And people ask me, wow. well, why is that? Why have you never, is it because you're a Christian? Is it because you go to church? And they get surprised when I say, no. It has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with me growing up and seeing what alcohol does to a family. Growing up, seeing what the lifestyle of drugs and alcohol does. And I never wanted to repeat that. So I made the decision as a kid, I would never touch it. I wasn't going to play with it because I knew that even though I didn't have the knowledge to know that, you know, addiction does run in, in our genes and things of that nature. I still knew that if this is what I see and if I do it, then that's something I'm going to become. Right. And so I just never touched it. And so even though I didn't have the confidence because it hadn't been done yet in my family, 
I knew that if I did the opposite, that maybe my, out- my outcome would be different. Good for you. That's that's really hard to break. Um, I grew up with an alcoholic father and my brother and I, we had our issues with alcohol and drugs, uh, whereas my sisters did not. They yeah. they did not at all. I don't I think they followed in your footsteps where they've never been drunk. Um, <laughs> but I think, you know, it's it's you know, that that means there's really something strong inside of you. Right. You're it's inherently in your nature. Like you just didn't want that. Um, so how do you, how do you, how do you maintain that balance today? How do you make sure that with all the things that you have your hands in, that you don't get stressed, that you don't, you know, what are some of your coping mechanisms and what are some of the ways that you maintain that to, to keep good mental health? I started, um, something real simple that I used to do when I was working for the state government agency, I was a field investigator and I saw the worst of the worst, Right. So while everyone was sleeping and everything was good by four or five o'clock in the morning, you wake up and the stuff that hit the news, those came through my office. And I knew that in order for me to maintain some level of sanity for some of the things that I saw, especially given that that built up a toughness in me, right, where I don't have a shock value. You can say pretty much anything to me. And I'm not going to be completely like shocked, like, oh, my God, this is I don't have a shock value anymore. And so sometimes it works for me. Sometimes it works against me, you know, as a result. But I had to decide then how am I going to, you know, balance this out? And I would do the simple thing every single night, no matter what time I got home. I would get in my I would soak in my garden tub. I would light all the candles, soak in my garden tub and I would listen to Nancy Grace in the background. Strange. <laughs> strange. I never strange, heard her strange. as being like a self-care kind no. of person, but I know <laughs> it it was the strangest thing, but at that time, that's when the Casey Anthony case was oh, like that was all yep. over. It was huge. And I was in that field. I was investigating. And so that was my thing. I don't care if I came in at three in the morning or five in the morning. My dog would always be waiting on me and I would run the tub and sit and not just listen to the updates. And then every single weekend I went to a movie. That was my thing. I went to the movie every weekend without fail. Didn't matter if I was out of town, if I was out of town, I still went to a movie and then I, I sold. Those were my things. Um, and then Outside of that, I just started doing little things. Of course, I, you know, ride and travel, things of that nature. But what kept me, you know, really level-headed during the times where I couldn't get on a plane, you know, or things of that nature, the the candlelit bathtub with Nancy Grace in the background and my movies on the weekends did it for me. (laughs) That's great. And I'm sure your ministry helps as well. It does. But the thing about ministry is even... When you as involved as I am in, in ministry, even when I go, that is still a level of pull that I that that is that is on me, right? So right. it's very if if I if I feel like I need a, a Sunday or a Wednesday night or something to just sit, you know, just sit. I don't want to be called on. I don't want to come do anything. You know, there were it was a heavy season when I was itinerant. I was being called to preach everywhere. I was doing a lot of that. And I had great people around me who who would help me, you know, get things booked and things of that nature. But if I wanted that type of a Sunday, I had to go visit where no one knew me. 
No one knew my name. So no one knew to call, you know, call me up or ask me to do anything. That is what I, I would have to do for myself. Good for you. You're setting those boundaries and you're reserving and re-energizing when you need to. And, and you know when to do that. It's so mm-hmm. important. So what are the, some of the principles that you bring to um, the National Coalition of 100 Black Women? So that you live by? That I live by. So the, the biggest thing that attracted me to the National Coalition of 100 Black Women is the, um, the constant you know, effort and not just the effort, but the work and advocacy with Black women and girls. Um, And knowing that I come from a heavily influenced family of of women, that was really, really important. Um, Also, you know, encouraging women to, you know, further their education, um, look into areas of health disparities and which includes mental health. That's one of our um, health disparities or, or health initiatives that we focus on. Um, and just making sure that we are proponents that we're pushing those areas because, you know, a lot of the times, particularly, I know women have this, this thing about us, um, but knowing that black women, we have this, this thing where we keep going, like it's, you know, everything can be breaking down, but we feel like everyone depends on us. And so therefore, when it comes to matters of our own health, including our mental health, or uh, matters of furthering our education or being mentored, as you mentioned, or economic empowerment, where we're trying to, you know, wage that financial gap, things of that nature. A lot of the times we take back seat to that. And some of it has to do with the attitude that we don't want to be seen as the aggressor. We don't want to be seen or labeled as the angry Black woman just for speaking up. There are a lot of things that contribute to us feeling like we just have to sit back, take it, and keep going, even when everything on the inside of us knows that something is off. And so this organization pushes those initiatives. It pushes those disparities uh, for us to advocate, you know, against that. And so I brought and still and still bring that, that level of, of passion and commitment. Um, I talk a lot to women about commitment because commitment, and this is, I believe this across the board, not just for work or for organizations. I believe this in relationships and everything. Commitment will allow you to continue even when you feel like stopping, you know? And sometimes it's that lack of commitment that some people have that prevents us from getting things done. And so, you know, I bring that that level of commitment because things weren't always easy, you know, it wasn't it wasn't easy starting the, the Dallas chapter. It was very hard. <laughs> it was extremely hard. And I was naive. I will say that I was extremely naive. I'm sure it was it. so many new things that you had no yes. idea on how to start a chapter. Oh, my God. I was so, you know, I'm, I've always been teachable. If I don't know something, I don't mind saying, hey, I don't understand this. Can you show me this or tell me that? I don't mind that. It was the other unforeseen things, right? It was, um, you know, and and of course, women have a reputation just because we're women. I don't agree with this either. Let me say that. But we have this reputation because we have a uterus that we're more emotional and we like to attack each right. other and, you know, and things of that nature, right? Um, and so I just, I, I come from a background, you know, women where I just was like, oh, I'm coming into a, a situation where I have all these new sisters. 
I'm not from a sorority world. So when people said, oh, these are my sorority sisters, I didn't get it, right? Um, So I'm thinking coming into it, that's what this is. But what really occurred is I met some really broken women. And so when you meet a lot of broken women and you pull them all together, things start happening, you know? And so it was hard. It was tough. It was very tough. Um, My mom was always my biggest cheerleader and kept me going, you know, regarding it. Um, And my friends, they, they kept me encouraged and we got through it, but it, it was definitely rough. And, and so I, I kept that uh, stick-to-itiveness, that passion. Um, And, and really one of the biggest things, if I may add, something that I do now, and it has been not only something that has helped me today, but it helped me back then. And and I use this, this same principle. I tell anybody who asks me this question or that I mentor or share or consult with is that I heavily believe in discernment, right. And, and prayer and, and things of that nature. And there were a lot of things that were coming at me that I would not have ever known was about to go down. Had I not stayed you know, true to having a prayer life and making sure I was sensitive to what was being said, what wasn't being said, well, you know, all of the other things. Um, If it weren't for that, I don't know that I would have been able to avert a lot of that. Good for you. It's hard because so there's so much distraction in the world that, uh, and that comes from others and expectations of others that get put, put on you, especially when you're in a new role that you really have to check in with yourself because ultimately it was funny. I was just thinking this morning on something that, that somebody had posed the question and I tend to go off by myself and I'll Mm -hmm. do something like everything from buying a house or getting a tattoo or, (laughs) you know, making, moving, like all these big decisions. I do it alone. Like I Mm -hmm. literally go into hibernation and people won't hear from me for weeks And then I come out and it's like, oh, look what I just did. Because you have to really trust yourself because I never want outside influences to to help me with that. And that's where the discernment comes in. You have to know who to trust and who you can talk to and who you can open up with. For sure. For sure. You have to, I tell people, never let anybody's voice in your life be louder than your own. Absolutely. If your voice is louder than yours, you got to stop, pump the brakes a little bit. And, and again, those are all lessons that you learn down through time, right? Because there have been some decisions that I've made that were influenced by people that I respected greatly. I mean, respected, and it fell flat. And so I and couldn't. And you probably felt that at the time there was something off, but you you were like, well, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, maybe yeah. I should go with this because they are a strong leader because I trust them and I Absolutely. respect them. And so you do, you compromise yourself sometimes yes. in your, you think it's in your own best interest, but it, it never turns out to be that way. You know, not at all. Not at all. I mean, I, I do have, um, I have people that are in my life that are constant, right? They are constant, solid. Um, one of the things that I say is, I don't accept criticism from anybody that I wouldn't accept advice from. And so (laughs) that makes it very, um, it makes it hard to throw me off at 40. It makes it hard to throw me off at 40. Whereas at 20 and 25, you know, perhaps even 30, um, a a criticism would come, a critic would come and and something would be said to give their opinion or or whatever. And it would, it, it would sometimes shake me a little bit. 
But at 40, if, if I won't take your advice on the situation, I'm definitely not going to take your criticism on it. And in order for me to take your advice, I have to see where your life has the receipts. Where are the receipts in your life? Yes. If I don't see any receipts, we, we can't have a conversation. Right. Exactly. Yep. Absolutely. Well, I think that's great advice for our audience today. Uh, mm-hmm. We are out of time. Um, right. So where can people find you, Mia? Yes. So you can go to my website. It is www.miadjohnson. That is spelled M-I-A-D-J-O-H-N-S-O-N.com. And you can also visit me on Instagram. That is underscore Johnson Collective. Love it. Well, thanks for being on the show. It's been great getting to know you. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Women CEO in Reflection. To reach out to one of our guests, their contact is in the description of the show. Do you want a total mindset transformation? Apply to Mindset Warrior, The Art of Intentional Thinking, my personal coaching boot camp at IamAMindsetWarrior.com and schedule your call with me today. Thank you.